0: It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details must be 21 plus in Presidents select states gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com
1: slash RG. There's a lot that could impress you about the all new Honda Prologue EB. True. It's got class leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.
0: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. You have got to be kidding me. We just did this pod on Sunday night, and now we're doing it again on Monday night. Now, the good news for the Celtics is their season is not over like the Bruins. But man, an embarrassing loss for the Celtics at the Garden, game one, no and and you find a way to lose to this undermanned Philadelphia 76ers team. And speaking of embarrassing losses, we're going to put a bow on that Bruins series and just how bad things went for this team with Scott McLaughlin of WEI in the skate pod in just a little bit. So we'll officially put an end to just the ugliness of what happened against the Florida Panthers. But where else do we start but with the Celtics tonight after a game one loss to Philadelphia? And it just feels like how many times are we going to watch this with this team? Philadelphia, yes, they're the number three seed, but they're without the presumptive MVP of the NBA in Joel Embiid. Somebody needs to explain to me how this continues to happen and somebody needs to explain to me what happened at the end of the game it's 113 to 110 the 76ers get the switch on al so Harden makes the pocket pass to Reed, gets to the line hits two free throws 113 112 more on the switching in just a little bit and then the next possession down i don't know what the celtics are doing tatum throws a flaming bag to brogdon and then Brogdon throws a flaming bag. He thinks it's going back to Tatum. It actually goes to Maxi. Maxey goes the other way, gets an easy dunk, makes it 114, 113. Turnovers, more on that in a little bit as well. But then you come out of a timeout. Missoula dials up a nice play, gets Tatum the ball on the catch, gets downhill, gets to the free throw line, hits both free throws, makes it 114 to 113. But then Doc decides not to use his timeout. You know why? Because Doc knows that Al's on the court. And he knows that Harden's a smart enough player that what's been working for him all day is going at Al Horford. He gets the switch that he wants. And guess what happens? He hits a step back three. Everybody knows it's going in. It's 117-115. And then the next possession, no idea what Marcus Smart is doing. And I thought Smart overall had a pretty good game, although the turnovers were definitely an issue with him. I don't know what he's doing on that play. Joe Mazzulla said after the game, he just made a read. I don't know what the fuck the read was. He just drives into the paint and just almost like throws it behind his head. I guess he's looking for Tatum, but I have no idea what he's doing there. And basically at that particular point in time, the game's over. And this Celtics team has done this all season long, and they did it last year too. How many times do we have to see this team have bad losses and look Philadelphia is a good basketball team they're the number three seed but they don't have Joel Embiid and this has sort of been a theme for the Celtics all year long I mean just think about it as recently as game five against the Atlanta Hawks you lose to them they don't have DeJounte Murray their second best player and look at the list Sean Grandy of course who we've had on this pod multiple times the great play-by-play man for the Celtics he had the list the cat the Celtics lost to the Cavs without Garland they lost to the Nuggets without Murray They lost to the Thunder without Shea, and they got killed without Shea. They lost to Miami without Butler. They lost to Phoenix this season without Booker. They lost to the Knicks without Brunson. They lost to Washington without Beal and Kuzma. All these teams, like the Celtics, they should have been the one seed if they didn't lose that game to Washington late in the season. How does this continue to happen? I have no idea. It's almost like they just let go of the rope and they feel like they're just going to win the game. I don't know how this continues to happen. I don't know how a team can lose to so many teams this year when the opponent doesn't have their first or their second best player. It's sort of been a theme all season long for the Celtics team. And now you give up home court advantage because you're not ready to go. And the other team, really, because you don't play any defense and the other team doesn't have their MVP candidate. The guy that arguably had the best season in the NBA, they don't have that guy. And you gave up home court advantage because of that. And tonight, you look at it in terms of what Philadelphia did. They had a 133.7 offensive rating did the Philadelphia 76ers in this game. On the season, when they don't have Joel Embiid, they have a 112.3 offensive rating. In the minutes that Embiid doesn't play, a 112.3 offensive rating. Only five teams were worse. Tonight, they have a 113.7 offensive rating. The best team in the NBA this season is the Sacramento Kings, and they're just under 119. This Philadelphia team, without its best player, put up a 133.7 offensive rating in game one of the second round of the playoffs when everything is on the line for the Celtics and everything is opened up for the Celtics as it pertains to the Eastern Conference. Giannis is gone. You're looking at this situation. Everything is in control for the Celtics. They have home court advantage throughout the postseason, except anymore they don't because they gave it up to the Philadelphia 76ers in this game tonight. And this defensive rating for the Celtics tonight... Second worst of the entire season. The only game they had a worse defensive rating than the one they had tonight without Joel Embiid was against the Oklahoma City Thunder. And ironically in that game, Oklahoma City didn't have Shea. I don't know how this happens. How can you have the second worst defensive rating that you've had all season long when you know, hey, we had to gut it out against Atlanta. That was a difficult series. How do you have the second worst defensive rating of the season after that? Like you would think that this team that has championship aspirations would have learned its lesson, but clearly not. I just don't understand how this continues to happen to this team. And the troubling thing with this, James Harden, and Tatum had a good game overall, but James Harden was without question the best player on the court. And I was giving you the number this the other day. This guy was putrid from two-point territory in that series against Brooklyn. His two-point percentage continues to go down the past couple of years. Just, he was south of 27% against Brooklyn, and you look at what he did tonight. First of all, the first thing I would say is this. I don't know if this was a game plan thing early on with him and Maxi. but why early on in this game were the Celtics going underneath Harden and Maxi screens? That's how they started off the game. They were going underneath screens on Harden and Maxi, And despite Harden's two-point percentage being down this season, it's a guy that still shot north of 38% from three-point territory, one of his better three-point seasons in recent history for Harden. The guy's a good shooter, but... Sometimes he doesn't have the numbers to back up, like the fact that he is an established shooter in the league, but this year he's over 38%. I don't know why you're going underneath screens because throughout the season, he's actually been bad from two-point territory, and the Celtics were almost like conceding threes, pull up threes from early in this game, which sort of got him in a rhythm, and I would say the same thing for Maxi. So Harden in this game goes for 45 on 17 of 30, and he's 7 of 14 from deep. There's no way with the lack of efficiency and look he was great from all areas of the court tonight but there's no reason for Harden to be able to get up 14 threes with the lack of efficiency he's shown from two point territory this season and especially coming off that Brooklyn series the fact that you let him get up 14 threes is just inexcusable and the scary thing for Harden or going forward with he only took four free throws and he still put up the 45 on you he was getting wherever he wanted on the court so that's the first thing and We've seen this now with the Celtics team. You have all these guards that are supposed to be good defenders. The Derek Whites, the Marcus Smarts of the world. And White was really bad. I'll get into him in a little bit as well. But you have all these defensive players on this team. Like you have a good defensive personnel, right? You have good defensive personnel. And Trey Young just lit you up in game five. And now James Harden does it in game one. These guards are just lighting up the Celtics right now. And look, Al is not good at switching this year. And he was getting dusted by James Harden. And it's admirable that he can get out there and he can do it. But at times you got to either blitz it, get it out of his hands. But I don't know why the game plan late in all these games is to have Al getting switched out on these guards that you know can beat him. It's almost like the game plan is very obvious for Doc Rivers and James Harden where they're saying, OK, they're just switching everything late eventually. And they tried pre-switching a couple of times to try to avoid the matchup. But eventually it's going to get back to Al. That's just how it's going to work. And if you look at Al... This season, 155 isolation possessions defended, second most in the league. Like I said, it's Adam rule that he continues to do this at his age, but the effective field goal percentage, 48%, and the points per possession, 0.99, 39th percentile. You're going up against James Harden, one of the best isolation players over the past decade, even if the numbers aren't what they once were. He's still a great one-on-one player, and you're having Al Horford switching him late in these games. You look at last year, Al was much better. 36.4 effective field goal percentage against, 0.72 points per possession. That was in the 81st percentile. So the percentage points are down about 11 points. And you look at the fact that where he ranks in the NBA, he's in the 39th percentile compared to the 81st percentile. So I just don't see how this can be the game plan late. We saw the Celtics just get burned in this same thing against Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks. They did the same thing late in this game where they were letting Al Horford Be on an island against James Harden. That's not going to work. I'm taking James Harden in that matchup, even if it's a diminished version of what he once was. Didn't look that way tonight, but that cannot be the game plan late in these games to have Al Horford on an island against James Harden. No more of that. Okay. so now Harden going forward, this guy's got confidence, right? He has all the confidence in the world because this was his best game of the season. 45 points, season high was 38 most threes made it a game prior to tonight was six he hit seven most shots made it a game prior to tonight 13 he hit 17 so now you have to worry about this guy like you woke up a guy that is a former MVP that's won multiple scoring titles he's getting all this criticism before the series because he went to Vegas quite frankly not that he cares about what I think but we're talking about the two-point percentage we're talking about he hasn't been the same guy since the Achilles injury and he woke up so you woke up potentially a monster and look Harden, historically, has had epic flameouts in the postseason. He's had bad, bad losses. He's had complete no-show. So you're hoping that that guy shows up, but it's scary that this guy got going. It is a very scary thing for the Celtics going forward that James Harden woke up because he looked horrible against Brooklyn, and he woke up for this game tonight. And then you look at Maxi. He had the N1 late on smart. He finishes with 26. And this is another guy where he woke him up. Maxi has been horrible against the Celtics. We were chatting to Raheem about it on Sunday. Five points in 40 minutes in one of the games. Eight points in 25 minutes in one of the games. Six points in 22 minutes in one of the games. So, three stinkers. He had one decent game, the first game of the year, 21 points, but five points, eight points, and six points. Tonight he goes for 26, and it felt like he could get whatever he wanted, right? He lit you up. And then, melting off the bench, this guy hits five threes. And, like, I don't understand why nobody was near him. He was getting wide open opportunities. He's a 39% shooter from deep. I'm not telling you that he's Clay Thompson or Steph Curry or Ray Allen in his prime or Reggie Miller, who was calling the game tonight, but this guy's a good enough three-point shooter that you have to get out to him. And he got all these open opportunities as well. He lit you up, right? And then you think about the fact that the Celtics offense in this game, awesome in the first half, shot 73.7% from the field, 57.1% from deep. They had 66 points. Yet they're only up two points because you couldn't stop Philly and Philly had a 146.5 offensive rating in the first half. I don't understand how you can shoot 73.7% from the field and the other team is only trailing you by two points at halftime. It's unacceptable. It just, I don't know how you don't bring the necessary effort defensively. And look, there were definitely things strategically that I didn't like as well. Like I told you early in this game, I don't know why they're going underneath those screens. But just from a defensive perspective, I don't understand how you can play as poorly as the Celtics did in an important game like this. Golden opportunity. Joel Embiid, the MVP, is not playing. And you show up and you let that team put up a 146.5 offensive rating in the first half when they've been bad without Embiid on the court this year in terms of their offensive rating. And for Missoula, you know what? He's going to be steaming after this one because... We know that he always talks about the math game. He wants to win the math game. And it makes sense, right? So he must be irate after this one because you look at the regular season matchups, right? The Celtics against the Philadelphia 76ers. The Celts had 62 made threes in the four matchups. And of course, the Celtics took the season series three to one. The 76ers had 43 made threes. So that means the Celtics had 186 points from deep and the Philadelphia 76ers had 129 points from deep. So do the math on that. That's 57 points in terms of the difference. So you were outscoring Philadelphia by 14.3 points per game from deep. What happened in this game tonight? Philadelphia took more threes, 38 to 26. They hit more threes, 17 to 10. So they outscored you 51 to 30 from deep by 21 points. The Boston Celtics, who on a per-game basis, the only team that had more threes than the Celtics were the Golden State Warriors, they were just outscored by 21 points from deep in Game 1. And they were easy attempts, too, right, for Philadelphia. The defense was not good enough in this game. And remember, the 76ers, they're a good three-point shooting team. They're number one in the league in three-point percentage. They just don't take a ton. But you look at it tonight, you look at the above-the-break threes. On the season, they shoot 38.5% and above the break threes, which is second in the NBA. Tonight, they go 15 of 34, 44.1%. And if you just take those 17 made threes in general, the Warriors lead the league at 16.6. So they were better than the league's best team in terms of made threes per game. And that's the math game. You cannot get beat in the math game against this Philadelphia team. You put yourself in a position to lose by giving them all these opportunities from three-point territory. And then... Another component to this is I had flashbacks to last year in the postseason where the Celtics were turning the ball over left and right. So if you look at it in this game, the Celtics had 16 turnovers. They allowed 20 points off their turnovers. And only two teams this year were north of 16 turnovers per game. And only one team gave up more than 20 points a game off their turnovers. That was the Houston Rockets, who could very easily have the number one pick in the draft. Okay, so basically... This is why I say it reminds me of last year. If you go back to last postseason, the Celtics, 16 or more turnovers, they were 1-8. And, and we watched it a million times, whether it was Miami, whether it was Milwaukee, whether it was Golden State. When they turned the ball over fewer than 16 times last year in the postseason, they were 13-2. and two. Again, 16 or more 1-8, less than 16, 13-2. Like, we should have almost been keeping track of this every game for the Celtics last year. And they did it again late. And they did it throughout the game, but they did it late, right? In the biggest moments, we ran through the end of the game. Brogdon looking for, I don't know, Tatum. And Maxey gets an easy opportunity, right? And then the smart play looking for Jason Tatum. And by the way, speaking of turnovers, I thought Jalen played really poorly after the first quarter, right? He had four in the game. It's 72-70. He had back-to-back turnovers. He just threw one. He drove into the lane. He realized he didn't have an opportunity to take a shot. He just threw it back out. Easy turnover for... Philadelphia. And then the next time down the court, he just got stripped in transition. So he kind of got out of control. And it just felt like after that moment, Jalen wasn't really involved in the game. We're used to Jalen being uber aggressive. Like you go to the first quarter, the guy has 14 points. He's six of seven from the field. And I was tweeting out Jalen's a monster. I felt he was going to have a huge night. After that, he had just nine points. It's not good enough. And in this game, Jalen Brown took 10 shots. Jalen Brown took 10 shots. All-star, probably going to be an All-NBA performer. He took 10 shots. Now, Missoula did say after the game, he's got to do a better job getting him looks. But how does Jalen take 10 shots? Tobias Harris took 16. Five guys in this game took more shots than Jalen Brown did, okay? That's just unacceptable. So they need a better version of Jalen Brown in game two. And Jalen has been a really good postseason player outside of the turnovers. I wonder if he got in his own head a little bit. But he was not willing to do what he needed to do in the second half, or he just didn't give you what you ordinarily get from Jay Brown in the second half when he was so great against Atlanta. He hit that huge shot late in that game. He just didn't show up. Marcus Smart had the six turnovers. I thought he actually was there for the fight, right? Unlike Derek White, who we'll get to in a second here, but he had six turnovers. He had the bad one late and Derek White, I mentioned him. He was a minus 15. Okay. He's a guy that always shows up in the impact metrics. He certainly did it tonight. 1 of 5 from the field, 0 of 4 from deep. And then if you go back to game 6 against Atlanta, 3 of 9 from the field, 1 of 5 from deep. So now in his last two games, 4 of 14, 28.6%, 1 of 9 from deep, which is, what, just over 11%, and a minus 16. And the scary thing about this is... And I don't think he's going to be this guy, but he looks like the Derek White from last year in the postseason where he just had a stinker after a stinker, right? And you're like, what's going on with Derek White? He was indecisive. I don't know what he was doing on a couple of those turnovers, like back-to-back possessions. One of them, luckily, he got bailed out. They called Maxie for a foul. But the next time down the court, he does the same thing. He just kind of spins and turns the basketball over. And the problem is they need Derek White's defense. They need him to be engaged. And we always know it's a confidence thing with Derek White going back to last year. And right now, he's just not in a good place. He played really poorly tonight. And you know me, I have deemed myself the king, the captain, the president of the Derek White fan club. And he was a complete no show. He was a non entity. Like we talk about the late game rotations all the time with this team and how Derek White should be in it. Joe Mazzulla made the right decision tonight. Don't go to Derek White. He didn't have it whatsoever. No, you wasted a really good Brogdon game, save the late turnover. He was. A plus 14, he had 20 points. Tatum goes for 39, 11, and 5. He played well. I did feel like one issue that Tatum had late in the game is it did feel like he was seeking out contact and not just going through and finishing because early on in this game, he was getting to the rim at at will. So that was one thing just to pay attention to because he had that issue last year in the postseason at times. But all in all, it's tough to criticize Tatum too much in this game. Brogdon was outstanding. White was bad. And Jalen was bad. I shouldn't even say Jalen was bad. It was like he was a non-participant in the fourth quarter. He wasn't really involved. The one thing I got to say is Doc Rivers, give him credit. Doc is always good with underman teams. He did it with the Clippers a couple of years ago. We saw him do it with the Celtics at times when they were dealing with injuries. Doc coached a good game. There's no way around it, right? And if you think about this, the adjustment that doc made in this game is he went to a zone like a lot of that second half he was in a zone and the celtics they got up just 12 threes in the second half they hit one 16.7 percent remember the celtics they get up 42.6 threes per game joe Mazzulla we referenced it earlier they want to win on the margins they want to win on the edges they want to take more threes than you so really if you think about Throughout the course of the game, you should be taking at least 21 per half based on where the Celtics want to be. They only got 12 up against that zone. And you ordinarily would think against a zone and you're playing the Celtics, that's kind of dangerous because they're going to get up more threes. Philadelphia did a great job just running them off the three-point line. So you have to give Doc credit for that. And The other thing I would say is the Celtics, they had a 153.5 offensive rating in the first half, which is just insane. In the second half, their offensive rating was a 104.3. The worst offense in the NBA was the Charlotte Hornets this year at 108.4. So the Celtics in the second half were more than four points worse than the league's last ranked offense on the season. In the first half, they were 34.9 points better than the league's best offense. So you have to give Doc Rivers credit and his coaching staff, Sam Cassell and all those guys credit, that they made the necessary adjustments where the Celtics had no answer for the zone. And we've seen this before with the Celtics team, going back all the way to the bubble with Eric Spolstra going to the zone, teams junking it up. Nick Nurse did it in the bubble against the Celtics as well. When teams junk it up against the Celtics, sometimes they can get thrown off. Give Doc Rivers a ton of credit in this game because he made the necessary adjustments. And I do feel like one thing the Celtics have got to figure out is the late game defense in these close games with these really good scoring guards, the Trey Youngs, the James Hardens of the world. You can't leave Al Horford out on an island against those guys. You gotta come up with a different strategy. Like, look at Paul Reed. I know he made one play on the short roll. He got to the free throw line. Make him make the play. Get it out of James Harden's hand. If Paul Reed is, that's how you're gonna get the switch. Paul Reed coming up and setting the screen. Okay, blitz James Harden, get the ball out of his hands and let Paul Reed do something on the short roll. I'd much rather live with Paul Reed making a decision Then James Harden out on an island with Al Horford. We saw it against Trae Young. We saw it tonight. No more of that late in these games. All right, I did want to get to this because this is fun. So us here at Off the Pike and the guys from the Philly Special Pod, we're going to do a head-to-head style FanDuel same-game parlay. So this is for game two of the series. I'm going to pick two legs that cover the seas. The Philly guys will pick two legs for the Sixers. And then FanDuel will combine them for a four-leg same-game parlay. So my two legs are this. Jason Tatum goes for 30 points. I believe he's going to have another big game coming up on Wednesday night because the Philadelphia, as we saw tonight, they don't have a good matchup for Jason Tatum. And I'm going with Jalen to have at least 25 points. Jalen needs a bounce back game in a major way. So that's my two legs of the same game parlay. Tatum for 30 plus points. Jalen for 25 plus points. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next. I mean, speaking of difficult losses, we're going to chat with my buddy Scott McLaughlin from WEI and the Skate Pod. What happened to the Bruins against the Panthers? We'll hit that next.
2: This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower, what's next? Start today at Empower.com tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he covers the Bruins for WEI, also hosts the Skate Pod as well. It is Scott McLaughlin. Scott, how are you, man?
3: I'm good. Better than the Bruins after a a tough Sunday night at the Garden.
0: Yeah, man, we're still sorting through the loss a couple of days later now. And Look, you were in the building for that game seven. What was the atmosphere like? Because I'm watching on TV and after the goal, they go up three to two. I'm feeling good about myself. And then, man, again, at the end of the game with what, what, about a minute left, the Panthers tie up that game. So take us through like sort of the whole game in, ter- in terms of what the atmosphere was like in the garden.
3: Yeah, that thought, thought it was a loud building to start. It, it usually is those weekend night games. You know, people have had a good day getting ready. Uh, so it was it was allowed to start and then Bruins fall down to nothing by the early second period and it was dead in there I mean it like it reminded me of of game seven of the 2019 cup final where it's like you just feel the air being totally sucked out and you're like oh no like is this just going to turn into a disaster of a night and then the Bruins start their comeback and they get going and the building's alive again and when Pasenak scored to to put the Bruins up 3-2, it was, it was like as loud as it gets in there. I mean, the place was rocking and most of the third period stayed that way. And you got the sense, you know, they're just waiting for like that final buzzer to, to explode and celebrate. And then the Panthers tie it with 59 seconds left. And it's like, you know, kind of goes back to being dead. And um, even in overtime, it was like, you know, the fans are trying to start, start a chant. They're trying to make some noise, but it felt more like, well, we have to do this then, you know, then like really confident and excited. I think you know, I think everyone's nerves were, were through the roof and like there was there's definitely a lot of anxiety and apprehension at that point and unfortunately wound up being warranted because uh they they, they got outplayed in overtime and then end up losing.
0: Yeah, just a brutal way for the season, this historic season to come to an end and Scott, I don't know about you, but when they go up three to one, I thought like most people that the series was over, even when they lose game five, when Marshawn had an opportunity late right on the breakaway, like, all right, they'll go to Florida, they'll pick up a win in game six, then they'll be fine. But then when it's like game seven, you know, you don't want to take any chances, right? It's a game seven. So but how did you feel going through the whole thing? Like, when did you actually think Florida had a chance to win this?
3: Uh it was probably some point during game six, you know, I, I, because I thought game five, the Bruins mostly outplayed them and, and you're like, okay, well, you know, they still looked pretty good, but just couldn't find a way to get done. And then that game six was really the one that that was a mess where it's like that kind of high flying game where it's back and forth and turnovers all over the place and chances up and down the ice. Like, that's not how the Bruins want to play. That's not what made them successful this season. You know, they they won on defense and goaltending. They gave up the fewest goals in the league by a wide margin. And you you saw it starting in game five and then really in game six, like that just going out the window where, you know, Lena Salmark all of a sudden looks very pedestrian and not like the Vezina Trophy winner. And the defense is turning it over on breakouts, and it's like that was that is so far from the team that they were all year. So I think when you when you saw that happening for a second straight game in Game Six, that's when I really started to feel like, man, that they might not be able to turn this around. Like they might not be able to get back on track in time. It felt like the snowball is kind of rolling downhill at that point, and just it's it's tough to stop once that happens because. Because the Panthers are a good team, like that, they're, that's a talented roster that won the president's trophy last year, you know, took a while to get going this season, but they can make you pay like if you're going to make mistakes, that team absolutely can make you pay, and they were, and continue to right through the end of the season through the end of the yeah. series. Yeah.
0: And the turnovers really were dumbfounding. It's really one of the biggest storylines to come out of the series. I mean, it felt like every time the Bruins turned it over, the Panthers would capitalize, even going back to the Bertuzzi turnover in what, game five. And then you had the Allmark misplay, like all those different turnovers ended up costing the Bruins. And another big theme of the series I thought was Montgomery, because after that game seven loss, he said that the only regret he had was splitting up Marshawn and Bergeron to Begin that game five when Bergeron was coming back from the injury, which is still a surprise to me that he did that. It's like, one are the weirdest things you would do? These guys always play together. Like, why would you split them up, especially when Bergeron's just coming back from an injury? But then I was starting to look through like some of the other stuff. And we'll get into the goalie portion in a little bit here. But you've been all over the game six decision, right? The decision to put Clifton back in the lineup. And in game six on the ice, the Bees are outshot 12 to five on five on five, three goals to none for the Bruins. He had two bad turnovers that both led to goals. And then he paired Clifton with Forbert when they had not been good in games one and two together. And so for the series, they're outshot 41 to 26 with those guys on the ice. And I know the numbers weren't particularly great with Grizzlick on the ice, but Clifton, it was just horrible. They're outscored five to one on five on five. And the Bruins, I would say in that game five and by the numbers, they were clearly the better team five on five. They just had some of those reckless turnovers that we alluded to. But I, don't, I just don't understand the rationale behind that decision. And Look, maybe Montgomery just doesn't want to admit some of the mistakes that he made. But that one, to me, that one, like, didn't really make sense, along with the Bergeron Marchand thing. And he fixed that eight minutes into the game. But I never really understood the purpose of putting Clifton back in. Like, I know he wanted to move Orloff up with McAvoy. But what was sort of the decision making process there? Because to me, it just didn't make sense.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't know. It didn't make sense to me either. Like one of the one of the moves he made that was good and, and it was. Fairly obvious at the time, but he still did it. Was after game two, he brings Grizzly in, and because the first two games the Bruins had really struggled on breakouts, struggled in transition, and he brought Grizzly in, and that helped. Like Grizzly helped with the breakouts and transition game; those are his strengths. Um, And then I didn't, I didn't think he played himself out of the lineup. Like you're right, it's not like he was lighting the world on fire, you know. And some of the five and five numbers weren't weren't great but i did think he was still helping with that through the three games that he played and to go to take him out and go back to that forward clifton pairing was really odd because that pairing did struggle in games one and two and they just didn't seem to have enough speed to handle florida's forecheck and cycling game like i thought you were conceding a lot of zone time putting that pairing back together that you really didn't need to like you know I, i thought you need to be looking for ways to to get out of your zone and get going the other way. Not, I feel like when you put that parent together, you're what you're hoping for is like, okay, they're going to spend time in the zone, but they're going to be clean. They're going to muscle guys out of the front of the net, win some battles, chip pucks out of the zone. It's not going to be pretty, but they're not going to give stuff up. Then Clifton commits those two turnovers. And it's like, well, there goes that plan. And, and Clifton <laughs> and Forber both get stuck behind the net on another goal, which is, you know a no no that you learn in squirts, and it's like, okay, well, you know, like you you could see this coming, so that was odd. And obviously, he go he gets away from it after one game and puts Grizzly back in for Game Seven. But yeah, that that should be a regret. I, I think he probably doesn't mention it because you know he doesn't want he doesn't want it to come across as you know I regret playing Connor Clifton, like he, right, he was unplayable. Right. You know he's not gonna. He's not one who's going to throw an individual under the bus. But yeah, I mean, hopefully that was a regret. I think the fact that he put Grizzly back in for game seven would suggest that he did regret it. So
0: yeah, right. That's a good point. He can't just come out after game seven and be like, you know what I really regret? I should have never played Connor Clifton in game six. It'd be a really bad look. So that's a good point. All right. So let's get to Olmark because we know he was banged up a little bit down the stretch of the season and. Part of what made this team so good throughout the regular season was the goaltending rotation, right? And in game six, Olmark was flat out bad. And there's not like this wide gap between Olmark and Swayman, right? Like you can look at it and say, yeah, Olmark's going to win the Vesna, but Swayman is what? Top four in the NHL and goals against average, save percentage and all that different type of stuff. So it's not like there's this massive drop off and it's not like Swayman or excuse me, Olmark during the regular season is playing six consecutive games, especially at this level of competition, right, in this level of intensity. So it would have felt like, okay, maybe before game six, after you had a questionable game five for Omar, that's when you make the change. But especially during game six. Now, maybe he just didn't want to make a move during the game. But then I felt like it's almost unfair to Swayman, which I thought he had an opportunity to make a save on the first goal in game seven, the Montour goal. But overall, I thought like it was almost... (laughs) unfair to put Swayman in that situation like you should have got him some and I know he came in briefly at the end when there was that whole melee at the end of what was that game for when they had that issue yeah. with Kachuk like he came in briefly for that but he didn't really play in the series so I thought you almost put Swayman in a bad situation I feel like they kind of just botched that situation
3: yeah I, I agree like I, I was one of the few proponents of just keeping the goalie rotation going into the playoffs, which I know is very unconventional. And, you know, every old school hockey person says, no, you just don't do that. But uh, at the very least, I, I thought they should have been comfortable going to Swayman at some point earlier in the series. And everything we had heard, they they had told us all year down the stretch that, yeah, we're comfortable with either goalie, but their actions in the series didn't really show it. You know, there, there were opportunities to get Swayman in there, whether it's, after game two, when Elmark struggled, or after game four, up three to one, or at, at worst, after game five, when Elmark struggles again, you're traveling back down to Florida. I thought game six was really when the move to Swaiman should have been made, because then you're getting him into a game while you still lead, lead the series, and either he's great, and now you ride him for game, you know, either you win and close out the series or you Keep him in there for Game Seven if you know you lose one nothing, a two to one or something. Or if he struggles, then you go back to Allmark in Game Seven and he's at least had some rest because he has been banged up. We found out on Monday, uh, Kevin Weeks reported that he was dealing with a quote debilitating and painful injury, which doesn't sound very good at all. So it's like if you knew he was dealing with this, why are you riding him? for a heavier workload than he's had all season. You know, like you had this rotation that works so well. It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to now ride a guy who also isn't a hundred percent. So, you know, I, I do think they stuck with him too long because you definitely saw all marks play decline in games five and six. And, you know, I know you can, we can talk about the defensive breakdowns and the turnovers. And yes, that's a huge part of it. He got hung out to dry on some of those but no matter what, you can't give up 10 goals in two games. Like you, you need another save or two in there somewhere. And he, he wasn't able to deliver. And he looked, he he was struggling moving around his crease. He bobbled some rebounds and just kind of, and obviously that turnover um, in overtime, like there were just situations where you're used to seeing him calm everything down that were like turning into chaos. And like, that's, that's never a good sign. that's a prime indicator of a goalie just being off his game is like you know a shot through traffic and all of a sudden there's a huge scramble in front because he wasn't able to control the rebound and it's like you were seeing that too often from allmark. so yeah, I think it's absolutely fair to say that they probably stuck with him too long and and did put Swayman in a tough spot in game seven.
0: All right. So, yeah, it's it's kind of frustrating, too, because it's not, I know he's going to win the Vesna this year, but it's not like you're taking out Patrick Y in his prime. Like there's a really good guy behind Olmark. Right. It's not like you're taking out Marty Brodor. Like they, Olmark had an unbelievable season, but it's not like he has this incredible resume as this guy that's been doing like Vasilevsky, who's been doing it for a long time now. Right. Like it's not like that type of thing. So that's why it was kind of aggravating to me when we know the option behind him is really good. Swayman had a really good season. So that's sort of the aggravating part about that. But so Pasternak, he came alive late in the series, had the two goals in game six, scored in game seven on that Carlo rebound. But game five, I thought he was bad, not strong on the puck. He finishes with five goals in the series, though. But overall, what did you make of his performance? What do you think? Because he did kind of get going late, but it took him a while to get there. I don't know if part of that, too, was just the line combinations were not working for him. But what did you make of his series?
3: Yeah, I thought definitely not his peak at all, but did pick it up as the series got going. And I thought really what you saw is him looking better on the power play as the series went on, where early in the series, he was really forcing a lot on the power play, and he wasn't getting a lot of looks. Florida's penalty kill was doing a good job, like, shading over to him and taking him away. And I think instead of accepting, like, more of a playmaker role or even a decoy role. I think he was just getting frustrated. And when, then when he was touching the puck, he was forcing stuff. And that's not the right way to approach that situation. Like, you you got to take what's there. So if they're, you know, if they're standing in front of you and, and your shot's not going to be there, then embrace being more of a facilitator, which he's done before. But for whatever reason, wasn't, didn't really seem to be embracing that. Uh, then I thought as the series went on, I thought the Bruins power play overall, looked better and you saw him getting more chances. And then he pops a couple in in game six and seven on the power play. Um, five on five, I think generally whatever line he was on was creating chances, especially when the check line got reunited, uh, game six and seven, but they didn't turn into a lot of five on five goals. So that you can look at and say like, you would have liked a little more there. Um, but they, they had chances, and, like, you, you feel like if the Sears went on a couple more games, that line probably finds a few five-on-five goals. So, um, you know, Krejci not being fully up to speed probably hurts that. Some of the line changes probably do. Like, you know, I didn't – I mean, starting that game with, you know, him, Bergeron, Bertuzzi, like, that, that didn't really work. So, I'm sure some of that – it all factors in, I, I think – he found his game by the end and is ultimately very far down the list of guys you would point to and say, like, that's why they, you know, blew the three-one lead because right he actually started playing better like while the Panthers' comeback is happening. So you know the the games when he was struggling, like that's when the Bruins went up three games to one. So um, you know he was one of the guys who came alive, and I thought I thought Game Seven was his best game of the series, and not even just the chances and the goal, but he was physical. He was throwing some hits. He was in on the four check. Um, He forced a couple turnovers. He drew two penalties. So I thought he was making an impact. And um, you felt like if they moved on and he had found his game like that, like I feel like he could have exploded in the next round, but now we're never going to know, you know, he, yeah. So it's tough.
0: Yeah. What about Hampus Lindholm? Because. Look, he failed to get the puck out of the zone on that Ryan Herkel. Now, that came after Hathaway. He iced the puck for no reason, and then he tried to clear it out with one hand, which obviously didn't work. But nonetheless, Lindholm could have got that out of the zone as well. The five on five numbers look good six goals when he was on the ice, three against. And I know 54 defensive zone faceoffs, right, on five on five, which McAvoy was at 38. So they used him a lot more, of course, in the defensive end. But I just felt like all season long. Scott, he took a massive step offensively. We all know that he led the NHL in plus minus this season. I just really didn't like feel that he had the impact that maybe we would have thought entering the postseason, because one of the things that we talked about all year long is like you get these two elite defensemen, then you add Orloff. I just I know that they asked Lindholm to do something different in the series than maybe we saw all season long. But what did you make of his performance?
3: Yeah, I definitely didn't think he was involved enough offensively. And you finally saw it a couple times in game seven where he had a couple shifts where he was getting deep into the offensive zone and was active around the circles and even below the goal line once or twice. But you really didn't see that enough in the series. And that was one of the things that, you know, led to him having a career high in, high in points this season uh, was how involved he was offensively. So. It almost it almost seemed like he was a little too cautious, a little too conservative for much of the c- series. Where, yeah, him and Carlo, their their number one task was their own zone, take care of business there, and they did a good job of that for the most part. I thought I thought Carlo was great in this series, um, but for Lindholm, it's yeah, you're you're expecting him to also be contributing offensively, and and he didn't. I mean, zero points in seven games, and zero points in in 11 playoff games as a Bruin now, going back to last year as well. And then you get, you know, a couple D-zone mistakes from him, and it's like, you know, no matter what the 5-on-5 numbers look like, it starts to feel like a net negative. You know, you have that puck over the glass penalty, then the bad turnover in game seven, and it's like, now that's what stands out because you don't have – there were no offensive highlights to point to and say like, well, okay, yeah, he made those mistakes, but look, he also – set up this goal and he walked down the slot and scored here and you know start cycle behind the net and set up someone in the slot. Like you don't have any of that. So all you really remember are the, the defensive zone mistakes. And uh unfortunately those were those were his big plays of the series. Other than that, like it was it was too quiet.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned Carlo because if you look at it the five on five play, if you look at The shots on goal. Pasta was first, 26. Marshawn was second at 17. And then it's Coyle and Carlo, 14 tied for third. So there should have been more of an impact that you felt from Lindholm, especially because he was spending most of the time on the ice with Carlo, right? Like, so we should have seen more from Lindholm when it comes to that. All right. So we saw the big hug after the game, Bergeron and Krejci on the ice. I know Bergeron said after the game on Sunday night that he's going to take his time to make his decision. So if you're a betting man, Scott. One's gone, both are gone, or both are back?
3: I would bet both are gone as I sit here right now. Um, You know, it it really felt like everything was all in for this year. And, you know, they both come back on one year, team-friendly deals. There's the incentives that now get carried over as a hit against next year's cap. And, you know, you saw trade after trade to to go all in, you saw them going over the salary cap, like, you know, Don, Don's knew like he was putting them in, in, in cap jail really with, with the moves that they're making this year, because it was an all in year. And I, and I feel like it, it was the same thing for Bergeron and crazy. Like it felt like, all right, we're making one last run and, and they never explicitly have said that. So yeah, until they tell us they're retired, uh, it's a possibility that they return. I think, Bergeron would probably be more likely to come back for another year, but you know another fact to hear is neither one of them made it to the finish line healthy. Uh, Bergeron told us after the game that he had a herniated disc in his back. Krejci had an unspecified upper body injury. He missed three games in the series, missed the final six games of the regular season. So, you know when you get up up there into your late thirties, and Krejci just turned thirty seven. Bergeron turns 38 in July. Uh, you know, center in the National Hockey League is not an easy position to play at that age. And those guys were pretty healthy most of the season, but ultimately were worn down and beat up by the end of it. And, you know, and that's only one round. Now imagine, you know, trying to get through three more rounds of this, especially Bergeron with with the herniated disc. Like, that's tough. It's, it's a lot in the body. And... I could definitely see both of them saying like, you know, we gave it our best. Like we, we did everything we could this year. Unfortunately we weren't healthy at the end. We didn't get it done. And, you know, and I I don't feel like we have it to do it again. So I lean towards, they probably both retire, but we'll see. I think, you know, obviously the, the Bruins would love to have one of them back. It would solve If one of them came back cheap again, it would solve, uh, the top two center issue, you know, Zaka can move in for one of them, but if they're both gone, then you you have that gaping hole that you have to try to fill somehow.
0: Yeah. And it's just unfortunate, too, if this is the way that it ends for both of them, because I really did feel like if you go back to 19, that was sort of like their last best chance. And then the next year they come back, they're the best team in the NHL. And then, of course, we all know what happened with COVID. And obviously they weren't the same team when they came back from the COVID break. And I thought that was unfortunate for them just because They're an older team, so it's going to take them a little bit longer. We all know what happened with Pasternakter and that whole bubble run as well. And then this year happens, and I thought entering the season, look, this is a solid playoff team. I wonder if they'll win around, and then they turn out to be the best team in NHL history. So this was their best chance to do it, and unfortunately, it doesn't happen. So all right, so let's look at the future a little bit. Orlov, unrestricted free agent. Bertuzzi, unrestricted free agent. And both those guys were good, right? Orlov had eight, point, eight assists, I should say, eight points in the series. Bertuzzi had 10 points, including five goals. A couple of really nice tip-ins. I, I've been really impressed with his passing. Like, the one that comes to mind is, what was it, game one, where he had the backhand pass to posture knock on the power play where pasta scored in that. But if you look at it, I mean, from a salary cap perspective, it doesn't look really good. I mean, you would figure both these guys are gone. Like, if you were going to try to keep one of them, you would have to be trading other guys on the roster, right?
3: yeah absolutely that they only have about five million dollars of cap space to play with there's still an off chance that the nhl cap goes up by more than one million It could go up as much as like four and a half but part of that probably depended on really good tv ratings and if you look at you know some bigger market teams getting knocked out in the first round that that doesn't bode especially well including the bruins uh i can tell you that you know, the networks would have much rather had the Bruins go on than, than the Florida Panthers. Um, so, you know, assuming it's around that 5 million mark. Yeah. If you're making any signing of any consequence, someone else has to be going out. So, you know, you can look at defense and you've got those, those three contracts in that three to 3.8 range of Grizzlick, Forbert and Mike Riley, who's, you know, just got buried in Providence all year and still has another year on his contract. So, those guys again, you, you know, you can look into trading one or two of them up front. To me, if you're signing Bertuzzi, it's almost like you almost have to kind of pick between him and Taylor Hall because I just don't think you can devote that much money into the wing position. So, if you want to sign Bertuzzi because maybe you think he's a better fit for this group, then you're probably looking at trying to trade away Taylor Hall. Like that's almost that's where that money comes from in my mind. So, obviously, the easier route would be just keep Hall and thank Tyler Bertuzzi for the good couple of months and let him go but again they're they're always looking at you know at fits and, and style of play and all that and Bertuzzi does seem to fit a little especially like playoff style scoring you know getting inside getting to the net dirty goals like he brings a lot of that and that's something they've needed for a couple of years so I think there's a lot of interest there but how you make it happen is is not going to be easy, and you know, by the way, like Taylor Hall had a really good series, too, so it's not like yeah. he you know it's not like he stunk and was quiet, and it's like, oh yeah, we can move on from him. Like he played well too, so lots lots of tough decisions. and like I said, if they if they also have to address the center position and try to find one of those, like that's not easy when you're when you're in cap jail. Those guys aren't easy to find anyways, period. never mind when you have financial limitations.
0: Yeah, and that's the unfortunate part, too, right, about the Bertuzzi thing. I wasn't done watching him play. I thought he was going to have a really nice run here, and it's a great point. Hall had an outstanding series, too, and it's unfortunate that the Bruins, because of the salary cap situation, are going to have to side between one of those two guys, and like you said, with these guys, the future up in the air for Bergeron and Krejci, that's another position that you may have to address when you're dealing with these salary cap situations. So it brings me to this. Before I let you go, Scott, you look at it. Your 2023 draft, you have no first from the Orlov-Hathaway deal, no second from the Lindholm trade. 2024, it's a top 10 protected first rounder in the Bertuzzi deal. Second rounder goes to the Ducks in the Lindholm deal. And then you go ahead to 2025. You don't have a second. So no first in each of the next two seasons, no second in the next three drafts. And the reason I bring that up is not because I don't think that these are the right moves. Like you put a Basically you put like an unbelievable team together. Or- Orlov was important and Bertuzzi was important. And obviously Lindholm's really important to now and the future, but the reason I bring this up is it's just like in terms of the future going forward if the Bruins do want to make moves, it's going to be very difficult, right? Because they're really at this particular point they're really asset poor.
3: Yeah, for sure. And they don't have a great farm system. Like they have, you know, you, you hope Fabian Lysel is going to be an impact winger you hope mason lori possibly as soon as next season is ready to play nhl minutes on defense you have some guys that can probably fill out a fourth line that's not an issue uh georgie merkel had a really good seat he's a center he had a really good season in the ahl this year so you have some young guys you're excited about but it's not it's not like there's like this huge wave of young talent coming and then like you said like you don't have the draft picks to to add that way either. So, you know, some, it's tough because it's like, if they're making trades, if they're moving guys off the roster, are they doing it to address holes elsewhere and and fill in the roster for now? Or could there be some deals in there for futures, you know, for draft picks? If you remember when, when Don Sweeney took over, you know, that 2015 draft obviously became pretty infamous with the guys that they picked. But they got those picks by making some, some shrewd trades of Milan Lucic and Dougie Hamilton, you know, guys that, you know, had been part of the core of the team, but they felt, you know, maybe weren't longer term fits and they were willing to move on from. And that was, you know, those are moves that could have really replenished their farm system had they hit on the picks. Um, obviously, you know, they didn't. DeBrus turned out to be the best of, of that group, but they could they they could do something like that too, where it's sort of, you know, that wasn't a full rebuild, but you knew you were taking a step back for a year or two. So they could do something like that where they get some of those picks back, and you know, okay, they're not they're not gonna be competing for a cup the next couple years, but you have enough, you have the foundation to make it a relatively quick transition. And maybe you've added a couple first round picks that you can start to replenish that. So it's it's tough. They're gonna have to pick a direction because, you know, you can't you can't do both. Like they can't remain a a cup contender right now and also rebuild their farm system. So they're gonna have to have to pick one or the other.
0: Yeah, it's just unfortunate, Scott. Like we may be done watching Bertuzzi play as a Bruin. We may be done watching Bergerrod and And we got robbed of Boston versus Toronto. Like that was going to be an epic second round series. I mean, it just stinks, unfortunately. And it's a good point on like the NHL salary cap. I mean, the NHL is going to be kicking itself right now that it's Florida against Toronto and not Boston. I mean, that would have been massive for ratings. I mean, imagine that's a second round series. Like for so many years, like we got the Pittsburgh, Washington, like Crosby versus Ovechkin. I'm not saying you have like the star power with the Bruins and the individual talent right like in terms of the name brand but you have the original sixes. like that would have been awesome
3: yeah and, and all the history it, you know it, it sucks it's like if Toronto finally wins the series and it was set up perfect you know to now have the Leafs finally over the hump and of course their next challenge has to be the Bruins who have had their number and like set up perfect and now it's like Leafs Panthers like what's you know every playoff series eventually <laughs> finds its juice, but like who cares? And, yeah. you, you know you, you look around, and it's like the networks have to be hoping for Rangers to to win Game Seven Monday because it's like they could end up with potentially Devils Hurricanes as the other series, like that they don't want that either. So uh, yeah, I think the the possibility of like a bunch of great TV series that could lift the salary cap up kind of seems like that that ship might be sailing, which is. Not not good news for the Bruins because they could have they definitely could have used that extra three and a half million.
0: Yeah, it's like almost the opposite, like the NBA. They made out well in all this. So you get Golden State, like Curry against LeBron, and then you get Boston against Philadelphia. You get Miami against the Knicks like it, it, the NBA made out. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for the NHL when it comes to the name brand teams. All right. That is Scott McLaughlin covers the Bruins for WEI and of course hosts the skate pod as well. Scott, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. This
2: episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of active wear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know? Like nothing nuts. Just like a really nice pullover comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable. You'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer dot com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page
1: to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.
0: Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Scott McLaughlin from WEI and the Skate Pod, Sorting through all these issues with the Boston teams, first the Celtics and then the Bruins, man. Difficult couple of nights here locally in Boston. All right, let's get to... Our email box and you can email your thoughts and questions to off the pike at gmail.com. So we bring in Jamie McClellan to go through some of the emails we got here. Jamie, before we get to that, man, I mean you heard me earlier. How are you doing, man? I mean, this is two rough nights. I mean, you're listening to me yell all this time. How are you doing?
4: <laughs> I'm a little shell shocked for sure. I mean, the only thing is, like you said, we just see this time and time again for the Celtics. So I guess it's business as usual for them, but uh it's disappointing. Yeah, the good thing is we have historically seen them bounce back from these
0: difficult losses. Last year, going back to Bobby Portis getting the free throw rebound and the Celtics end up losing that game. They win game six in Milwaukee. But it does feel like this team makes things way more difficult on itself. And the other component of that is this, Jamie. The Celtics should have learned from this. They were tired in the NBA finals yeah. and they only had themselves to blame for it for all these bad losses. But you would think at some point can you just beat a team that doesn't have their best player? Is it that complicated? When these teams don't have their best player, the Celtics play worse. I don't get it. Like, you would think if the other team doesn't have their best player, it's going to be easier for you to win. But for the Celtics, they've proven that the opposite is actually true. It's remarkable. I know, and
4: you were, they were talking after the game, Horford and Tatum. And they both said, yeah, maybe we didn't play quite as hard because... Bead's not playing. It's like, come on, guys, <laughs> how many times are you going <laughs> to do this?
0: It's the playoffs. Yeah. I don't get it. I Crazy. really don't get it. All right, man, let's get to the first email. Who do you got?
4: This is from Michael. And this is true, by the way, which I did not know and looked it up. He says, unfortunately, while I love the Bruins, they just don't have a winning culture, losing seven of their past eight Stanley Cup finals appearances, collapsing versus Florida this year, playing a stinker in game seven against the Blues in 2019. This Bruins team reminds fans like me of the 70-71 club that set regular season NHL records but played a horrible first-round series and were eliminated by Montreal, with the turning point being a poorly played third period in Game 2. Sound familiar? Thank goodness for the 2011 Cup, but what is it about this Bruins team that plays so poorly in big games and breaks their fans' hearts so repeatedly? Yeah, it's incredibly irritating because especially
0: this series, like we'll get into the blue series in a little bit here when I get to some of the bad losses that we've seen in recent Boston sports history, Jamie. But this series in particular, it was there for the taking. You were up three games to one. And I really felt at that particular point in time, if you told me, hey, Florida is going to come back and win the series, I would have told you you were crazy. Even after game five, I was still feeling pretty confident. You got two chances to knock off this Florida team and I do, and we were chatting with Scott about this, I put a lot of it on the coaching. And we found out that Allmark was banged up and Kevin Weeks, as Scott mentioned, the injury was debilitating. So if that's the case, I still, I why wouldn't you go to Swayman? Swayman's been good all season long. Allmark was bad. He couldn't even catch the puck in game six, make the adjustment. And this stuff with the line changes completely overthought it. Like, I love the fact that the guy wants to make adjustments and all that different type of stuff. But call me crazy, Bergeron and Marshawn always have played together for like 15 years. So let's keep those guys together. And then the we chatted to Scott about this, but man, like the Clifton decision in game six is mind-numbing. So I do put a lot of this on the coach. Now, I can't put all the sloppy turnovers on the coach because how many giveaways did we see in this series that led to goals? You think about the Bertuzzi situation. You think about the Olmark misplay. We saw the Clifton turnovers in game six of the series. So this continued to happen to the Bruins throughout the postseason, even going back to game seven. I mean, Lindholm can't get rid of the puck. Hathaway is trying to get it out one handed, and he's icing the puck prior to that. So I can't put that in the coach. But I do feel like his first postseason run here with the Bruins, he completely overthought it at times. But I, I don't know if one has something to do with the other, right, because there's a lot of different pieces on this team than we're on the 19 team. So I I can't connect those two pieces together. I mean, you're talking about different goaltenders and all that, but it's just unfortunate because, you know, it'd be one thing if you lose in the conference finals or the Stanley Cup final, but the fact that you lose in the first round against Florida, who struggled all season long, man, it's just embarrassing. And we were robbed of a deep run for this team, which just kind of sucks.
4: Yeah, it's a real shame. And I I think that's, that's all fair. The only thing I, I think about is and not to let them off the hook, but the Bergeron injury at the end of the year, like do they have to shuffle the lines at all if he doesn't get hurt in that game? Yeah, that's
0: true. But I thought they looked good in games three and four,
4: yeah. right? In games
0: three and four, they were playing really well. And true. Charlie Coyle was really effective in those games. And then when Bergeron came back and look, it's not all his fault, but he was outscored what they were outscored four to nothing with him on the ice on five on five. I don't think like he was the problem for that. But it did feel like for whatever reason, after Bergeron came back, they just never really got it back together. And I did feel like they were sort of cooking with gasoline. And I had the fear of not playing him in that game five, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, because I was afraid he was going to get hurt. I'm like, they're going to take a run at him or Pasternak, right? Because of the fact that that team is dirty. We saw the whole thing with Kachuk and Olmark. We saw Bennett hitting Hathaway in the nuts like after he was down on the ice. That's what I was concerned about. I didn't think that bringing back Bergeron was going to screw up everything from a line perspective and the coach would lose his mind and try to come up with these new lines that we've never seen in the history of the Bruins organization. So, unreal, man. Unreal. we get anything more positive, Jamie?
4: Um, I think we can do that. This is a Sox question. This is from Abraham Smith. Abraham, he's quoting Verdugo. He says, please be fucking fair, which is that... Mess in post game yeah. interview. He's cleaned it up in the post game interview since then. Yeah. But after that, Abraham writes, "Alex Verdugo this season has been a soothing bomb on the chronic rash of the Mookie Betts trade. He's like herpes medication. You can't cure it, but you can manage the symptoms. I hope this doesn't catch on as a nickname." What are your thoughts on his year so far?
0: Well, sounds like he's speaking from experience or something along those <laughs> lines. So, <laughs> but anyway. Verdugo's had an outstanding season. You can't say enough about the guy, right? Because of the fact that he was challenged and he hit the walk-off in the game tonight against the Blue Jays. You take the opening game of that series, which is important with Berrios on the mound, who he had had three good starts lately, but Berrios is not a great pitcher and he sucks against left-handed hitters. So the Red Sox stacked up the lineup with lefties. They only had two righties in the lineup tonight, which I love the fact that they actually have the ability to be more versatile this year with their lineups. And the only two righties you had, Kike was in there and Turner was in there. And Turner's a lifetime 295 hitter against right-handed pitching. So it actually makes sense to have Turner in line with the guys outstanding against righties. But nonetheless, it was a huge win tonight to get the first one out of this four because you are going to get Manoa and Gosman at the end of the series. Hopefully you can light up Kikuche on Tuesday and at least assure yourself a split in the series. But nonetheless, with Verdugo in particular, Alex Gora, he even said it on this pod the first time we had him on. He said, like, We need more from Alex Verdugo. Verdugo, I know he was dealing with an injury last year, but he was out of shape. He wasn't the same athlete. The defensive numbers are way better this year. And you just look at his numbers at the plate. He's gone from 280 to 308, 328 on base to 372, 405 select to 479, 732 OPS to 851. He doesn't strike out. He doesn't miss pitches in the zone. He's an incredibly difficult at bat. And here's the thing I would say about Verdugo. He's always been great hitting high velocity. His swing decisions are much better this year. That's why he's hitting better against breaking balls and off-speed pitches. But, Jamie, I got to say, when Verdugo comes up in a big spot, we've now seen it. Twice in the past, what, four games? Go back to last year. He had big hits, and I know this team didn't play in a lot of big games, but Verdugo does come up with big hits, and it's almost like he's built for the moment. So, Verdugo, I give him credit, and I think this is something now that the Red Sox organizationally have to think about. If they want to try to get in front of him in terms of a contract extension, because if you look at sort of the age of this team, they have a lot of older players, the Turners, the Kikes, Duvall, who currently is on the shelf right now. They have a lot of young guys that are coming up, right? The Wongs of the world, the Tristan is of the world, who actually has the worst batting average among qualified hitters in all of Major League Baseball. Not worried about it. I'm going to trust the process with him, right? But anyway, the point being is they don't have a lot of guys similar to Rafi's age, where they're in their prime. So I would be thinking right now about trying to get in front of Verdugo. The interesting thing, though, it's tough to kind of come up with a number for him, right? Because he's not a real big power hitter, and... He's now improved his defense tremendously. You would think now he's comfortable hitting leadoff. And I do like the fact that he asked, hey, let let me stay in the leadoff spot. So now he's hitting leadoff against righties and against lefties. But I would be doing whatever I can. And I think that would be sort of a win for Haim Bloom if he can get him signed because of the fact that, OK, well, it's like and by the way, Connor Wong, and I'm not saying it, it was a good trade. Believe me, I'm not. But Connor Wong is grading out as one of the best defensive catchers in all of Major League Baseball. And now over the past couple of games, actually starting to hit, had the home run the other day, but you do kind of want Verdugo to stay here if you're high in bloom. And you kind of want to get this done because at least it's something that came from the Mookie Betts trade. And look, maybe some guys, it just takes them longer than others to mature as players and professional athletes. Verdugo, maybe last year was the wake up call for him because he did not have a great season. And now he's been up until this particular point in time. Rafi's batting average is down I know he's hitting for a lot of power He got the 10 home runs tied for the most in the American League second most in all major league baseball Verdugo's been their best player which is crazy to think about if you told me before the season Verdugo was going to be the best player I would have said hell no based on what he did last year
4: I think it's great and even just beyond the the baseball field he's just very charismatic and he's fun you know it's like we need some players that the fans can connect with. So I hope they lock him up. I love watching him. I love his bling. I wonder how much he spends on his chains. I don't know. You see it fell off one game. I did. Yeah, I know. He he looked concerned, but he he got another one on. I think probably bigger. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if they can
0: get a contract extension done with Verdugo. It's going to be difficult for him to make the all-star game in the American League just because the outfield is so deep. But he's definitely going to put himself in the conversation. He's going to have an opportunity and by the way, Jamie, right now, guess who's in last place in the American League East? The Yanks. Yep. Not the Red Sox. You they lost
4: another one today. Yeah.
0: Well, hey, at least the Red Sox are winning, man.
4: The Red Sox are right now. I know. Right Three-game now. win streak. That counts as a streak in my book. Um, for D- Verdugo, though, what do you think? Like 15, like five years, 75 million? He, he'd probably want more than that, but I'm not sure he's worth more.
0: Yeah, he probably would want more than that. I can't see him getting something over $20 million, but yeah. at some point, you got to go to him with something or at least approach his agent about seeing if he wants to get it could be because I think he does. I think he mentioned that, that he wants to be here and why wouldn't he? he, he Yeah. So, Hey, try to get something done. I think it'd be a major win for Haim Bloom If he can get Verdugo signed and this it's got to feel good for bloom that this is happening. You know what I got to say though? One guy I really like watch watching right now is Turner. Turner is just, this guy's an incredibly difficult at bat. Yoshida has been on fire. Duran. How about this? (laughs) Duran came out of nowhere
4: he got some power, man. He crushed he that ball tonight.
0: Yeah, he's a big guy. I've never seen a guy swing the bat that he does. He like The way he does, he like interlocks his hands. It's bizarre, but he's finally comfortable. Give him credit. I mean, he's finally comfortable out there. All right, Jamie, great stuff, man.
4: Thanks, Brian. Talk to you soon. All
0: right, remember, if you want to email us, you can email us at offthepike at gmail.com. So if you're mad after game two, hopefully you're not mad because that means the Celtics lost. But if you do want to email us, it's offthepike at gmail.com. All right, so on the Sunday pod, I mentioned that I did not put this Bruins loss in the same category as some of the worst losses we've had in recent Boston sports history, right? And the reason I said that is because despite the history, right, the historic nature of the Bruins season, they weren't close to winning the cup yet. If this was in the conference finals and they blew a 3-1 lead to, say, hypothetically, Carolina or something along those lines, or they did this in the Stanley Cup final, like they got all the way to the cup and they lost, okay. Okay. But there's no guarantee you were beating Toronto in the second round, who played really well. It's a loaded team that just, of course, disposed of the Tampa Bay Lightning, who have played in three consecutive Stanley Cup finals, right? So that's why I just couldn't put that in that category. Now, look, maybe the Bruins, after they escaped Florida, like they didn't give up that goal in the final minute of the third period, maybe they escape and they look more like themselves against Toronto than they did in that series against Toronto. But we're projecting there, right? So when I think of the tough losses as a fan base, I'll go back to the turn of the century because I can't go back. I wasn't alive to watch the 85 loss that the Celtics had to the Lakers or the 87-1 or 86 for the Red Sox. Like, I can't go back to those. So I'll go from my recent memory of bad losses or the most difficult losses, right? Because we're really, we've been spoiled as a fan base over the past 20 years with all the championships we've won. But the most difficult losses for me The 2019 Bruins was more difficult than this one, right? Because you were right there. The C's parted for the B's. The Lightning got eliminated by the Blue Jackets. Ironically, the team that previously set the record for wins. But you didn't have the defending champs. The Capitals got knocked out. And Pittsburgh got knocked out too, right? Those are two teams that you were hypothetically worried about. And you had, home height, uh, you had home ice against the St. Louis Blues, a team that was not considered to be a juggernaut at that particular point in time. They lost game five at home, the Bruins did. When Char came back from the broken jaw, remember the garden was electric, Char is coming back, and you lost that game. You go game six, you win in St. Louis, you think, okay, no way they're losing game seven on their home ice. And the Bruins came out flying in that game seven. Remember the first period, the Blues had one shot on net entering the final minute of the first period, and then what happened? Ryan O'Reilly found the back of the net, and then you had that whole issue with Marshawn on the line changed, so you enter the dressing room for the first intermission down two to nothing after you had just outplayed that team, and Bennington was just turning everything away, so that's when you kind of had the feeling that it was over for the Bruins at that particular point in time, and that was a golden opportunity. I mean, we were chatting to Scott McLaughlin earlier about just the fact that Who knows what's going to happen with Bergeron and Krejci. But just think about it. Bergeron, Krejci, the core guys at that time, Chara and Marshawn, they would have got a second cup to put themselves in a different category. And unfortunately, they couldn't get it done in 2019. And what we saw, of course, this year, they couldn't get it done either. But that was really the opportunity for that core to get another one. Okay, so that one's in the conversation. 2007 is the worst loss that we've seen, right, in terms of the Patriots losing to the Giants. That takes the cake. You, without question, will go down if you win that game as the greatest team in NFL history. There would have been no argument against it, right? Like, the whole Mercury-Morris thing, the 13-0 Miami Dolphins, there'd be no argument that Patriots team would have been the best. In the history of the NFL, you had the historic offense. Brady broke the record. Moss broke the record. And then you show up for the Super Bowl, and you score just 14 points in that game, but you still had a chance, right? Brady found Moss at the end with 2.45 left to give the Patriots that 14-10 to lead. And we all know the history, the helmet catch, David Tyree, and then, of course, Plex Burris in the back of the end zone. Look, now, the Patriots eventually win three more in 14, 16, and 18. But having that one would have been so damn special. And the fact that Moss, who was so great here for that short amount of time, that he never got one. And Welker, and I know he dropped one in the second Giants Super Bowl. But the fact that Welker and Moss never got one, Logan Mankins never got one. Like, that's never sit right with me, that none of those guys got... Super Bowl rings, right? Because I do feel like the narrative around Wes Welker is totally different here. If he just gets the one in oh seven, even with the drop a couple of years later, I would put the 2010 Celtics game seven in this category as well, in terms of the most difficult losses to go through, because I honestly felt like in 2010 entering that postseason that it was sort of over for that group, right? Remember, that was LeBron's final year in Cleveland, and they had won 61 games. The Celtics play them in the second round. And they end up beating the Cavaliers and you have LeBron James walking off the court, taking his shirt off. And you kind of knew at that time, like he was leaving Cleveland. A couple weeks later, I should say like a month and a half later after the season had ended, we get that great press conference, the whole decision situation with him and Jim Gray. But remember that series, Rondo went off 21, 11.8 assists and 6.3 rebounds per game. He was really good. And then the Celtics beat Orlando and then. Perk, of course, tears the ACL, but that game seven, you still had a chance. And the Lakers outscore the Celtics 30-22 to in that fourth quarter. And the thing is, Kobe wasn't even good in that game seven. He was six of 24, but Pierce in the fourth quarter was just one of five. And as a team, the Celtics were seven of 18 from the floor in the fourth quarter. And it was Ron Artes that sort of stuck the knife in, right? 76-73, 123 left after Rasheed Wallace hits a three. Artes hits a three. He makes it 79-73. Then Ray gets it to 79-76 with a three. And then you need a stop. And you get the stop. Kobe misses a three, but Paul Gasol gets the offensive rebound. And that's pretty much the game. But that one right there, it was there for the take-in for the Celtics. And just like we talk about the Bruins getting that second cup, if that group gets another one, the Pierce, Garnett, Ray Allen, and throw Rondo, because Rondo really became the main engine of that team at that particular point in time, they enter a different conversation, right? Now they're just in the conversation with the 2011 Mavs, the one-off, the 2019 Raptors. And I get they had more success, right? The Celtics had already won a championship. They made it to two finals and they gave the heat all they could handle in 2012. Like they had... Longer success than that Mavericks team had, and of course, Kawhi was only there for a year, but you get another championship, you sort of get into a totally different conversation in terms of where the Celtics are at. And we all know what happened in 2009, KG hurts the knee. If he doesn't hurt the knee that year, I still contend the Celtics won the championship because in 09, they were better than they were in 08. And then I throw the 2017 Super Bowl in there in terms of the most difficult losses that we've seen since the turn of the century. And the reason for that is the Malcolm Butler situation, right? Tom Brady throws for 500 yards in the Super Bowl. Nick Foles lights up the Patriots defense for 373 yards and three touchdowns. And apparently Malcolm Butler is talking about it at the Super Bowl this year. He's got like a documentary or something coming out. I want to find out what the hell happened. But nonetheless, Brady was robbed of one of the greatest Super Bowl performances of all time. Gronk was great in that game. He went for a buck 16 and two touchdowns. And it would have been the first back-to-back Super Bowl winner winners since the 0304 Patriots so you would have done that like more than a decade later and unfortunately the Malcolm Butler thing and don't you think at halftime when Nick Foles is lighting lighting you up you would have said to yourself you know what maybe we should put in the Malcolm guy maybe you know what no matter what he did maybe this is the time to put the Malcolm guy in so if and I would not throw the second Giants Super Bowl in there just because the Patriots defense was so bad that year, I felt like the Giants were the better team throughout the game. Like the 07 Patriots, they were the best team in any NFL history if they finished the job. I would. That Patriots team, they did not have a great defense. It sucked that they lost, but I mean, you get the three after that. The 07, it's just the historic nature of that. The 2008 ALCS underrated tough one where you had a chance to go back to back and Terry Francona thinks the 08 team was better than the 07 team. Alex Corey came on the pod. Remember, he actually mentioned that to us, that he disagrees with Terry Francona. But that 0-18 was loaded. Young David Price comes in, closes out the Red Sox. But the Red Sox had won in 4 They had 1 in 7 They won in 13. They won in 18. So it's not as debilitating. And even 3 Aaron fucking Boone, I can't put that in the same category either because you literally had the greatest comeback in the history of sports the next year against the same team. So it sort of gets rid of that wound, so to speak, as well. And by the way, the Yankees didn't win the World Series that year, so it's not as difficult to swallow if the Yankees had won. But if I was going to rank them, 07 Patriots would be the worst. 2010 Celtics, I would put second. I would put the 19 Bruins third just because of what it would have meant to that core. And then I'd put the 2017 Patriots, where Brady throws for 500 yards, fourth on that list. But those would be my top four in terms of the top four most difficult losses that we've had since the turn of the century. This Bruins one. Not even in the same stratosphere because you weren't close to closing the door yet. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617 396 7172. 617 396 7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast. And we'll be back with you guys after game two Celtics and 76ers on Wednesday night.
2: Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, you want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side-by-side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.